between the creative power at your fingertips and the lifestyle that can create, there's no career like being an artist in the 21st century. Hi, my name is Justin Weiss, the founder and host of the Creator Curriculum. It's our goal to help you, the modern day artist, realize that your portfolio is a passport to wherever you want to go. Recording our 39th episode, the guest of honor today is Aaron Covret. He's a 3D designer who has worked for clients such as Microsoft, Squarespace, Xfinity, and more. Across studios such as The Mill, Tendril, and Manverse Machine. Aaron's eye for rendering, stunning realism, has earned him slots as a guest speaker at events such as NEB 2018 and 19. Calling all the way from Michigan, a very special thanks to Aaron for making the time. Uh, hello. <laughs> hey, it's great to meet you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, what, what the guest should know is how sick you were a few days ago. Oh, man. You, you're really being a soldier right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I get for uh, for moving back to Michigan and having to deal with uh, Michigan winters, right? <laughs> yeah, I've heard legend about that. Like I said, I haven't moved to Chicago yet, so I'm not familiar with how brutal oh, that is. I'll be ready. We're, we're basically Canada, so... <laughs> yeah so so what's appealing about michigan do you have like family there yeah it's home it's uh you know my wife and i we both grew up here um i think you know like many we moved away for for a career uh but the you know the past few years like so many kind of opened up a lot of opportunities and realizing that maybe we can we can make this work from from the comfort of uh of the midwest and um yeah, it's been great. You know, we moved back, uh, bought a house relatively quickly. Unfortunately, right in the midst of the the uh, the pandemic spike, so definitely not the best <laughs> time to buy a house. But uh, but we made it work, and yeah, no, it's just been um, it's been a, a real great way to kind of like recenter my life um, around you know the right priorities. Yeah, family's always the right move. Yeah, absolutely. A good Midwestern boy, as I've heard them <laughs> say a lot. <laughs> Let's be honest, it also very much helps that I can continue to work internationally with studios across and everything. So that, to me, made, really made it all possible, right? Yeah, there's, there's some perks to the times we live in. Yeah, absolutely. Has there ever been like studios, uh, or big studios in particular, that are like, no, we can only work in person? Is anyone still clinging on to that idea? You know, it's 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 interesting. Um, fortunately, not really, and that's one of the big questions I tend to ask um, pretty early in the process of you know um, meet and greets and, and various um, calls with, with with studios, just to kind of gauge that a little bit more. I would say um, certainly from a freelance capacity, I haven't noticed any um, you know strong arming to to get me back into the office per se. You know, there's the occasional, especially speaking to like tech companies when there are like staff jobs and stuff that come up understandably that has some you know uh, bigger dynamics at play of needing you in an office and stuff so i've definitely had some of those conversations but but specifically as a freelancer it seems like um i'm not feeling limited at all by by being remotely now yeah that's good to hear um i mean i i think that it's a lifestyle change for people with family that's really positive especially i mean everyone yeah. i know who has kids is like all about it. Uh, I think the younger generation and single folks like myself, I think <laughs> you, you, you do kind of miss out on that, like uh, next level of relationship that you get 
with work. Like my level of interaction with work is for the most part, just like this uh, AOL chat essentially. But <laughs> there's another level where it's like you're forming real friendships on like a, a in-person level. And not that Definitely. I'm not friends with my coworkers, um, but yeah. I, you know, I realize that I'm missing out to some degree. Yeah, Does that that's, bother you? that's definitely that's definitely a good point. Yeah, it can be tough. Um, certainly, I think I think it's there's like you have to make a dedicated effort to really um, overcome some of that, you know, and, and that comes through the process of, of um, you know, reaching out to friends, doing sort of like weekly calls when you can. I know like forced fun sometimes can be a little tough with teams or like a, a mandatory happy hour <laughs> on a Friday is uh, exactly yeah. what everyone's rushing to. Um, but, but I think it is on the, yeah, exactly. I think it's on the individual to, um, you know, to, to try to reach out and, and, and make those connections where you can. And for me, a lot of that, um, you know, as much as I'd love, uh, for that to be in, in person for some of my friends that are now, you know, across the coast in different areas, um, doing it remotely, uh, through, through fun calls and stuff like that is, uh, is at least, uh, itching that, that scratch or scratching that itch. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The itch is real. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I, I think there's a version of it that's that's kind of like getting the benefits of both, but not losing too much. Totally. Um, but there is like that level of bonding, I feel like. Bonding, I feel like, that requires yeah. hanging out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a certain level of um, camaraderie that, that is, is forged in the depths of, uh, of production, right? <laughs> um, some of the best experiences yeah. I've had have come through those late nights at the office where you're working with, with coworkers for sure. Yeah. It's not quite the same when it's just you. Yeah. But, but, um, yeah, I mean, you sound like you're struggling with something like that right now on this current yeah. project. You know, it- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think suffering is always like good at building that camaraderie. Like you said, <laughs> ironically, yeah. um, so if you're going through something hard and putting in long hours, even if that is a remote thing, I think you at least, unless it goes really poorly, you at least like respect the other person a lot because you know that they have the metal to like stick with it, keep doing it, and they're they're there with you. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. I think that's where like some of the closest you know friendships I've I've developed with coworkers have come through that production because you know it's not to glorify any of the the process for sure, but it, it does. Um, you know, companies you, you, like wow, so they're on board with this. Awesome, yeah. <laughs> to dust. No, no, by no means. It's but but you, uh, you you do develop that that um, you know that trust in in your coworkers um, to to kind of like see it through together and stuff. So yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, like, like I said, I don't want to tell any companies hearing this yeah. that it's a good I thing. To- <laughs> we're, uh, we're yeah, we're navigating a fine line, my friend. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> sending sending some strange messages here. Yeah. <laughs> very sadistic. Um, yeah, so I guess like b- backing up from that a little bit, I'm yeah. curious if you could just kind of walk me through how you got into uh, 3D. I, I saw on your LinkedIn yeah. last night when I was looking up some of your, your accolades and stuff. Mm-hmm. I think you were a web developer in the beginning. Web yeah, yeah, yeah. Then that's that's a great point. Um, so yeah, I actually I went to school for like tr- more traditional graphic design. I think I I had always s- sort of like partially been interested in three D, but I didn't really know how to take the plunge into that because I didn't have any in my mind, you know, proper training per se. 
Um, right after school, mm-hmm. I graduated. I, I actually moved out to New York, so I lived in New York for a few years. Um, and I worked at an, uh, an agency out there that um, specialized in building like interactive web content. Um, and so I, I wasn't necessarily a web developer as much as I was a, you know, more of like a, a UI web centric um, motion designer. And so I was working with developers a lot to, you know, translate, um, whether it was for, for websites, translating like, uh, like motion language into, into code. Um, but the more interesting, I think, aspect of that job was probably more, uh, about working like in WebGL and, and, and starting to dip my toes into like more cutting edge real-time workflows. And to me, that was, you know, it, it wasn't a studio that, that really focused in the type of 3d that I wanted to be doing, but those, those rare, like WebGL projects were opportunities for me to kind of like uh, satiate that appetite a little bit more. Um, and so, so I think those were some of the earliest like client commercial focused um, applications of 3D that I that I did as a as a working professional. But but really, it was mm-hmm. it was sort of the lack of um, doing really what I wanted to be doing in that space that that was motivating me to kind of you know, um, head home in the evenings and, and pick up personal work. And so I think doing a lot of personal work while I was living in New York, um, releasing a few, um, you know, few larger projects, um, under that microscope, um, really allowed me the, the platform to kind of take that leap then into, into, uh, 3d as a, as a main focus for my career. Yeah. And, I, I could be misremembering, but was your first 3D job at Man vs. Machine? Uh, yeah, I guess if we're going off of the merit of like proper staff, like you're going to be, you know, your your title is like 3D design or whatever. Uh, then yeah, yeah. I mean, I did I did a small stint of freelance, like in between, um, uh, in between leaving the the web company and 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 ultimately going their staff. But yeah, I would say that was that was certainly um, it. Certainly feels like the the beginning of that that process for me. It's like that's pretty laudable. Like, <laughs> I know. It's, who the hell is this guy? Who is he? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, it's not lost on me. The, um, the, uh, you know, the how 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 crazy that is, and and how um, lucky I am to have been been um, found and taken a chance on with uh, with the team like that. Yeah. So, what do you think allowed you to stand out like that? It's, it seemed like a pretty brisk pace, you know, considering you were didn't, sure. you didn't really go to school for this stuff. It's, sure. it's, so it's all kind of on instinct that I'm imagining that they really, I think like they must've responded to your taste at that point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was, um, you know, I feel very, I'm trying to avoid like any sort of creative cliches here. Um, <laughs> you have a you free know, license. Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, you know, looking back, like um, I, I think, there, there was a, a bit of luck involved in terms of timing even because, um, you know, I, I had sort of positioned myself pretty early on. I think, I think once I started to find any bit of success in the space, it was because I sort of found the unique footing that maybe I had that sort of separated me from, from what else I was seeing in, in my mind, at least. And, and that was, you know, I saw you had Cornelius on recently and I think he's another artist that, that um, would speaks very well to this of just like, having, uh, taking pride in having patience, um, you know, uh, to, to explore a particular subject, however small and siloed your vision is to, to endless depths, uh, to, to, you know, um, 
in the face of boredom at times even. Um, and, and I think, I think even from a young age, like that was something that, you know, like in high school I was doing figure drawing and like was developing that muscle of just like, this is not a, like a fast moving process. It's something that takes a long time to develop and, and, and learning to really develop that, that patience as like a core fundamental, um, you know, ar- a tool in your arsenal. And, um, I think that became, as I started to find success in personal work, that became a key key motivation to explore. And so, you know, I've, 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 I did a few projects back then that, like a, like a still life, for example, where it was really sort of this 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 very self indulgent uh, process of just being able to explore uh like the look development process to to a degree that client work would really never allow you it would never be practical to to um manually place dust particles uh just just the correct way on something so that that uh you know i know it's it's correct even if someone else doesn't see that at a first glance kind of thing um and, and i think that that level of um commitment to something that that is easy to overlook i think is is likely what maybe caught the attention of man v uh is especially because and this is where luck comes into play they were they were in the middle of a of a new hiring wave at the los angeles office and and one of the the things they were on a key lookout for was was a principal looked of artist who would specialize and help sort of round out the team's capabilities when it came to finishing and, and polishing, you know, final production level shots. And so there was sort of, um, I think, uh, you know, a convergence or an alignment in terms of what I was very much interested in pursuing and what they were specifically looking for. And so that kind of, um, you know, that kind of fit really well. Right. So is that the kind of work you enjoy, like the, the final stages of production where yeah beautifying things yeah absolutely yeah i I definitely think that's that's my my bread and butter that's where um i feel most confident and and most um you know most uh engaged i would say you know like so many i think i think one of my long-term goals or or even short-term really is just to continue diversifying skill sets as much as possible um I think it's good to, to be to be great at a or, or you know to to want to be the best at a at a number of specific things, but but also taking a slightly more generalized approach to your skill set um, can always you know um, create new opportunities for you and, and and give you a little bit more context and, and a better mindset when it comes to to tackling projects. Obviously, a lot of that is formed by working with smaller design companies like, like man versus machine, which very much thrives off of that sort of generalist mentality. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, so I, I would say like in, in the recent landscape, I think that's, again, that's where I've, I've sort of, um, uh, built my career up until this point, but, um, it's definitely something that I'm looking to expand upon. And, you know, lately I've been working a little bit more as an art director. And so being able to kind of take, no, no. When I can, I can uh, indulge that that process and, and and jump into a micro level and really focus on those details, but also being able to take a step back slightly and and understand and guide a project from a more holistic top level as well. Yeah, you definitely come across as someone who uh, doesn't sweat the details. Is that, <laughs> is, that the, is that the right use of the phrase? That mean, does that mean you don't care? Yeah. Flip, I flip so. that, flip that. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Oh, I sweat the details, man. <laughs> right, right. You seem very sweaty. <laughs> uh, yeah, especially late at night with all those machines cranking. Yeah, sure. yeah. Extremely sweaty. 
That's how we. That's how we get through the Michigan winters. You know, I haven't. I haven't needed a heating <laughs> bill. I just. I just turn on the thirty nineties. You know what I meant. I hopefully, but no, but um, yeah. So I guess I'm curious. Um, I had a question here, which seems like it's already been answered based on what you said. It was, do you consider yourself a fast designer or do you just outwork everybody? And I guess my amended version of that is, do you, do you, um, have you found a process where you can achieve the level of detail that satisfies you in a, a way that is, on a reasonable timeline or is right. it always a matter of just like putting in the extra elbow grease? I, I love this question because I love talking about this. Um, it's a little bit of all of the above, you know, uh, again, I'm going to, I'm going to throw another creative cliche at you, but it, it really is about working smarter, not harder. Um, it's something that, you, you know, I, I, I've said it once already, but I, I do find the look dev process to be pretty indulgent at times, right? Like it, it, it is about like, you start that, that initial first pass and you're like, oh, this looks like shit. And let me, okay, I'm going to throw this new texture on and okay, that's looking a little bit better. And maybe the scrunch map or this light. And you just like little dopamine hit after dopamine hit. You're like, oh, you're just like following breadcrumbs to like get to the final result. Right. But then yeah. four hours go by and you've crafted this like perfect, you know, wood material that looks exactly the way you envisioned. And then the client says, oh, I, I thought it was going to be concrete. And you're like, oh, no, like that's an entire day's worth of work kind of down the drain. And so it is about translating when it's personal work. That's fine. Like if it's personal work, you can like, you know what? I wanted this done today, but I, I, I'm really excited about what this new thing. And I'm going to learn something new if I just like chase this for a little bit longer. So if it takes till tomorrow, that's fine. I can just I can I can see where this plays out. And with, mm -hmm. with client work, you don't have that option. And so with client work, it really is about sort of um, defining a pathway that, that has rails on it, right? Like there's still enough room to travel and figure out where you want to go. But, but by putting some, some amount of railing on, you, you prevent yourself and others, um, if you're working with the team, from, from straying too far off the beaten path. And um, having that sort of, sort of unified vision uh, is, is what keeps the project on, on, on track. And I think that's the biggest lesson I learned from, from my time at man versus me, man versus machine specifically was like the best thing you can do for, for uh, a film when you're starting production is like as quickly as possible, get first picture out. Like it doesn't matter how rough it is. It, it, it's about overcoming that discomfort that you get. If you're a, a look development artist specifically, it's overcoming the discomfort of like looking at a shitty picture, but knowing that like there's enough there um, that is indicative of your vision, but that you haven't exactly executed on yet, right? Because because right. what that allows you to do is you, you get first pass out, first pass lighting, first pass textures that, that just says, hey, this is, I'm thinking this will be like a concrete floor or, or whatever, and it's going to be some, uh, you know, a sunset uh, atmosphere or whatever. And that's enough to that then like other people, if you're working with other artists and team, like there's a unified vision now that we, maybe we don't all agree with, but we can look at and understand, okay, this is what we're thinking, what needs to change from here? And yeah. it's, it's about building the house from the ground up, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. I mean, th to me, that's the biggest thing. And I think, you know, I can get into like nerdy specifics of like how I set up like materials to accommodate that kind of stuff. But I think holistically, like that is, you know, the, the question you should be asking yourself as much as possible. It's, it's really about a lesson in, in restraint, you know? Right. So can you give like a, a practical example from one of your projects of... yeah. The type of guardrails you're talking about, because I feel like it's easier said than done. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, um, let's see. I think, uh, okay, so like when I was at Man vs. Machine, there was a, a purple mattress spot that we did, which was like this like bespoke purple. like 60 <laughs> second. Yes, exactly. It was this like 60 <laughs> second spot that was like very much like a, a brand film that was meant to sort of reposition them away from some of the slightly more like slapstick comedy stuff that they had done before into a slightly more like ethereal, relaxing, um, you know, slightly more sophisticated uh, stance on the brand. And um, it all takes place in this sort of like very, you know, modern bespoke design house. And it's just like uh, the product behaving badly essentially throughout the space. And it's the, kind of like the juxtaposition between those two things that I think makes that film rather interesting. And, um, you know, we, it's, it's a 60 second spot. There's probably upwards of 50 different shots in it. Um, can't re remember exactly, but you know, there, there's a fair amount of stuff happening. And we, we did that first pass lighting. Like it, it's, it's not easy. And, and to your point, like, you know, sometimes it is, it is some manual grease that you're just having to throw at it. And, and sometimes that, you know, that means making a big sprint. Um, but, but to me, it, it proved critical to, we got a first pass uh, of that entire film lit um, in one session with all of the artists. And so that was in, in one day we kind of left, you know, entered the next morning having all shots again, like, uh, you know, rough lighting, but enough to where like that entire film got put on the farm. Um, obviously, you know, layout and everything had been done, but in terms of like starting the actual render process, like the entire film had been put on the farm essentially in one day. Um, wow in a rough state but just so that that next morning we had something we could look at and start to make sure that everyone understood where spatially things took place where time of day things took place um and and to me having not seen that level of intensity that level of sprint happen um at that particular part of the project you know like that's that's often the pitfall with jobs is like you find mm -hmm. yourself like weeks before delivery and it's like there are shots that still haven't been picked up or touched yet and 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 are still like in the animatic phase and it, it it's it's you know unleveled footing then so like the the project as a whole isn't moving necessarily in one direction certain parts are and they're almost done but certain parts haven't been touched yet and that's a very uncomfortable feeling and so having this sort of holistic everything rising at once um really did uh did a lot in terms of unifying the team's efforts Right. So as a look dev artist, you're, you're doing lighting and texture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Amongst, amongst other things. But I think those, you know, like I said, like the way I, I kind of uh, like to sell myself as like a, is a production oriented designer. And so what, what that really translates to is I still like having a, a voice in the, in the early creative process and being able to contribute frames early on, especially at a, at a studio like man versus machine where that, that is kind of critical to how they, they at least the, the Los Angeles office had sort of structured their, their workflow was you were essentially just, you know, throwing stuff at the wall in dailies early on as much as you could, um, just kind of giving creative mm -hmm. ammunition. And then, um, you know, where my strengths, I think, really um, uh, sort of come to play is, is being able to translate that, not not necessarily having like a dedicated design team and then a dedicated production team, but sort of being the, the person that can kind of hop in between both and, and take something that maybe I contributed from a creative level, but actually, um, you know, here's another cliche of uh, apply left and right brain approach to it where I'm, you know, doing, doing creative problem solving, but also exploring more technical practical application of, of that idea. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have some questions around, I guess, 
so some of the places you worked at, they are known for doing these abstract brand type films. And I'm, I'm just fascinated by how purely creative they are. Um, I, I wonder what, I wonder if there's like a specific example of a project where you could kind of explain what the kernel of an idea was for the film and then how that kind of rippled out into what it became. Because when you watch some of these, it's just like, this is one of the more beautiful things I've seen on the internet. And I'm really curious what the thinking was behind it because it it feels cohesive, but it's not, it's not exactly like clear. what the brief was from the art director to the team. But now that I have you here, I'd love to know what that is. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm I'm obviously tempted to speak to some of the projects for man versus machine because in my mind, those sort of stand as, as, as strong pillars to what you're speaking about. Um, You know, I'll I'll caveat that at my time at man versus machine, I was, I was, uh, I was a designer, so I, I will not take credit for the, the, the art direction (laughs) and, 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 uh, creative direction that, that I received from some of my, um, my peers there. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think purple mattress is definitely, uh, again, a great example. And, and, you know, there, there's some other projects that I'd like to talk about too, like Squarespace, but, but again, going back to purple mattress, for example, that one, because I think that is such an absurdly abstract film for, for that, that brand. I mean, prior to that, that, that film coming out, it, it really was, uh, more of a slapstick comedy position brand. Um, that it, 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 you know, in hindsight, looking back now, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of, we took, it, it, it was a gamble in terms of the types of abstract thinking and product points that we, that we made, um, you know, that we represented visually in the film. And, and, and there's a few things to, to mention there. So the, the biggest thing I think with these, these types of, uh, studios, but also the clients they work with one of the most important things is, is having the right clients. Um, all of the projects that I want to talk to you about are indicative of the client relationship that, that these studios have developed. Um, there's an immense amount of trust involved in this process of, Hey, like usually it's the brand, usually it's these studios coming or these brands coming to the studio for that studio's, you know, reputation and, and sort of, voice that that studio has established right and so it's like you know purple kind of came to man v for the man v take on their brand and so that sort of set the tone that usually sets the tone early on of like the expectations and stuff but even then it's it's still it, it, it's it's a relationship that you have to cultivate and and support um you know from from the studio side especially um and mm-hmm. and in terms of purple what that meant is like you know, from from the exposure that I had to the client, they were incredibly supportive to the process. They understood it, and the things that they didn't, they trusted us on to you know to come back and and, and to explain and to to sort of um, work with them through the process so that they did feel comfortable. Um, and I think that was really important for this job in particular because again, it was like it was it was we we were given essentially a, a bullet list of a very specific product points that they wanted to make. And, you know, the whole thing with Purple Mattress, for example, um, who's getting a lot of airtime here, uh, <laughs> were like, you know, like the, it's like a grid system. Like the way that the mattress works is like very unorthodox compared to other ones. And so that was everything that we wanted to kind of showcase was like how this like grid system supports weight distribution and how it's like flexible and so you can bend it in different mm. ways. 
And, and that's very visually stimulating, right? Like there's a lot of visual ideas that can come out of that, um, especially when you're talking about simulations and how to like twist and pull and stretch this, this really interesting product. Um, and so, yeah, like I think through, through that, that, that bullet point list, we sort of started to, to just conduct like R and D, um, just like sort of un, I don't want to say unguided because it was guided by that, that bullet point list, but but you know, it wasn't like we were handed like a a storyboard that that had the film figured out. It really was like um, each artist had the the freedom and flexibility to kind of go away for a little bit and say, you know what, I'm going to try some like Houdini vellum setups where I can set set up this this grid. And you know what happens if we like just twist it around a bunch and then we let go and we see the elastic snap kind of thing. And then, you know, we just flooded the the dailies folder with as many of these experiments as possible. And through that sort of a, mm. a, a, um, you know, and this is where like, it comes to like the art direction and, and, um, and creative direction to kind of like sift out like gems in that, that, that can kind of sit together and form a cohe- coherent, cohesive thought, you know? Yeah. I mean, is there, is there any structure It's like beginning, middle and end, or is it just kind of like, uh, these shots demonstrate the product, like trying to figure out how you form a narrative when there really is, you know, a very loose narrative at best. Sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's definitely, um, it is a simultaneous development. Like it's all happening kind of at the same time where you're, you're getting all of these, this, this, you're casting a wide net as wide as possible to kind of, uh, establish capabilities and, 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 and interest and, and everything in terms of like what, what the artist team wants to do. And then um, simultaneously, it's like, as soon as you find a few key, key successful tests out of that, like that usually starts to then drive the narrative, um, at least in processes like this, not, not to say every project is like this. Sometimes you have a, a more specific brief, but something as abstract as this job was really was driven from the R and D. And then we sort of, use that to actually inform the story. And so after we started to get a few key successes, it started to make sense of like, oh, you know, like what if we created a space where these R&D tests essentially were the story? Like this is like, at one point we were even exploring like, like a, like a literal scientific lab where all of these things were being conducted. But, but you know, that, that was sort of like that sat, with some of the more slapstick stuff they'd already done with like the egg test and stuff. So we, we sort of repositioned things to, to take a slightly more original approach, which was placing it in more of this like bespoke, like at one point we were really exploring the idea of like a museum or gallery space. And so, you know, parts of the architecture really were informed by that type of reference. And really it became like each of these different, bullet points that we had in our head that we were doing R and D tests on became like their own little exhibitions in a, in a museum. And that the film was actually just sort of through time, um, you know, navigating through that space and, and showing those different tests. Right. And did that like gallery concept or any of the others, I guess, stem from what the company had done before? Or was this kind of a radical break? I think it was it was radical in that it it, re, it it shifted the the idea of those like testing the product out um, away from you know because they, they had positioned themselves as like in a lab before like usually like at that point like the the purple people were like when they talked to you they were like in like scientific uniforms and and lab coats and stuff like that 
Um, okay. And so, so we had it, it was sort of like a, a new take on a formula that they that they had sort of been playing with um, themselves. Right. I mean, I've been watching it while you've been talking about it to kind of contextualize, you know, vi- visualize what you're talking about. Yeah, and- sure. <laughs> It's it's so good. Yeah, I, I really love that shot at the end where the stones sink into the mattress. It, it, you really feel how soft it is. Yeah, it makes yeah, you that's, buy one. And that, that that's an interesting shot too. Yeah, I know exactly, right? Um, that that's an interesting shot too because it it, it sort of combines a few different um, few different pillars of like the development process there, right? Like you have like the more technical simulation of the product, and we had you know artists that were focused almost primarily on on sort of building out that capability and understanding how the product reliably behaves under different scenarios. Um, yeah. But then there's also the more artistic interpretation and expression of, of, you know, we wanted that moment of like someone diving into a mattress and, and showing how like the weight distribution works and stuff, but we, we wanted to elevate it and, and maybe do something other than, I think at one point, like, I think it's even in the development reel, like there was like a ragdoll, like body just like getting thrown at it. And it was like, how can we, how can we do a more, uh, you know, elevated uh, take on, on that idea of laying down? And so that's where like the concrete sort of sculpture that if you notice, like the form of it is, is sort of built to, to emulate the curve of, of a human form. Um, but again, it's, it's, mm. it's sort of reinterpreting that into more of a, a uh, museum or artistic exhibition space. Yeah, it's it's the most fine art stone sculpture <laughs> I've ever seen. I, I, that's that was my thought. I guess looking at it is like who who came up with this version in particular of weight sinking into the mattress. Like that's a it's a concept that makes a lot of sense, but the way it's executed mm-hmm. is pretty special. How yeah, they're like sliced into pieces artists. like that, and then they have that swoop, like you said, which now I'm realizing is supposed to evoke the human, <laughs> the human body form. But um, yeah. yeah, it's I don't know. It's all it's also tasteful. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, obviously, there's so much. There's so much of the the team's effort here. Like my role on the job. Um, you know, again, like Man V, especially at the at the Los Angeles office, uh, at least with my experience tends to gravitate more towards that sort of generalist approach. And so you have artists that are usually kind of like contributing that sort of like initial idea in the R and D phase. And then they're able to kind of carry that all the way through production. Um, I, I definitely kind of came in as part of a hiring wave that was attempting to um, introduce a little bit more of a um, specialist uh, capabilities in some ways, as I mentioned, like I came in to, to uh, primarily focus more on the look development process. And so much of the work that I did in this space was was um, developing the the environment, but also the entire like sort of material library and language, um, especially when it came to like product stuff, where we had to be very specific about like you know thread patterns on the on any fabrics that we used, as well as you know the 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 the, the grid itself has a very like the product has a very specific sort of subsurfacey plastic look, and so that that took some some development on and. Um, you know, so I, I, like that combined with like my, my sort of lighting passes and, and rendering approaches, like were sort of the roles that I filled, but, um, but I can definitely speak to, I believe it was amongst a few artists, uh, Andrew Prisalis was, uh, was a TD that I had there. And, um, from what I recall, he was, um, largely responsible for like developing the, the sculptural, um, moments that you're, you're speaking to. All right. We'll have to interview him next. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll just talk about the stone sculptures. <laughs> Those are the hottest curves I've seen in a long time. <laughs> so I guess the other thing I really want to talk to you about was just your, your materials are pretty phenomenal. It looks real. And I think 3D design <laughs> doesn't always hit that mark as often as like a VFX or CG company. Um, but you could, sure. you could totally cross over. <laughs> it's really good. Um, Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. So I guess... I was just wondering if you could just generally kind of explain why you think you're so damn good at this. And sure. I have some other questions having kind of just worked on a project that was trying to achieve realism. You know, I don't think, I don't think I got as far as you, but I, I have some specific questions mm-hmm. about workflow, but I, I guess if you could start out cool. generally. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'd love to, to, to get as deep as you'd like with that. So um, yeah, I think generally speaking, one of the biggest things um, when doing material work is is actually the lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, understanding the the interaction of light and the surface that you're trying to emulate. Um, so much about realism, both both. I mean, even in real real time, you look at like game development and, and where visuals are going there. So much of it is reliant on on like the specular information um, and, and the way that that is is sort of being driven by by the light interaction and so um you know to me like those two things are are hand in hand and i think um broadly speaking like there are you know specifics to get into that can help you like everything is about getting like five percent more realism five percent more fidelity but i think if you're looking for like the easiest like broad stroke way to like get 40 percent better results you know i'm throwing numbers randomly out there but to get a a larger chunk uh of headway out of uh, you know working um Lighting is definitely the biggest, biggest thing when it comes to material development. All right. Well, same question, but for lighting. (laughs) (laughs) So, so lighting, when it comes to lighting, I think, I think one of the, um, most common mistakes, especially when you're starting out and you're just kind of getting a, getting, um, uh, a, a gauge for, for how to approach it properly um, is, is underlighting, um, and specifically underlighting in the form of like throwing an HDRI at the scene and calling it a day maybe. Um, because, you know, I think, I think HDRI, especially when you're starting out like that, that's, that's like the most efficient way to, to, to start to get realistic effects, right? Because it is being driven by realistic parameters, mm-hmm. but it also has a fairly low ceiling in terms of um, it's easy to get up and running, but you, you really are going to be fighting. And if you're trying to get, um, truly like, um, impressive results at the end. And so, um, you know, to me over the years, my, my, my lighting style is kind of refined and, and, and changed over time. I think, I think it's very easy to underlight something. And, and what I mean by that is, is, um, really like not really starting to be okay with like, blowing things out to a degree like highlights especially if you're working in aces like highlights should be pretty bright depending on the lighting's uh circumstance of course but like it's 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 okay to like you know really expose something higher than what maybe your first instinct would be um at the same time i think uh on the other uh side of that coin it's also very easy to overcomplicate things and and that that's unavoidable even you know today still I struggle with that where like a first pass lighting or a second pass 
you don't always need 30 lights in the scene. And sometimes that can actually work against the story that you're trying to tell to like perfectly place rims in every way and pack as much uh, information so that every angle of a, of a shot, you know, has like this like perfectly orchestrated uh, lighting scenario where it's always, it's always idealistically lit. And it's like, that you know, ultimately you're trying to emulate reality, and that that's that's unless it's like a hyper controlled studio environment, that's not usually the case. Obviously, this is a little bit different if you're talking about product or automotive rendering, but you know, if we're talking about like lifestyle rendering for like an environment or something like that, it's it's it, most often I will I will take a first pass at a lot of lights, and then the second pass, I will start to reduce that, and then the third pass, I'll start over. Like, I'll I'll get rid of all the lights and say, you know what, let's try this again, but I'm gonna, like, one by one, I'm just gonna bring, like, let's just bring, like, the main key light back in and see what that looks like. Okay, do I need five different rims and two different bounces and a fill to, like, get this working? Can I, let's try one of each and see what happens there, and then kind of, like, just you know, using the, a more informed approach from what you've done prior, but trying to streamline and make that more efficient. Yeah. And like when you add lights, um, I guess I'm, I'm assuming that they're IES lights for the most part. Yeah, it depends. It, it certainly depends on the job. I mean, um, yeah, you know, you can get into to gobos and IES profiles and um, all of that kind of stuff. I think, um, I rarely do that on the first pass. That's usually like some of the last things I do to get the, once you're starting to explore the nuance of, of the light texture. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously there are some exceptions if you're doing like environment lighting and you want like a dappled light look or something like that. Or if you're doing like very expressive shadow and light play, then, then those, those tools maybe need to be brought out a little bit earlier in the process. But mm-hmm. um but it is, you know, much like I had said earlier with, about material work, it is about, even with lighting, building building the house from the ground up. And so it's about, especially if you're working in animation, getting getting those moments, those, those beats blocked in quickly and then just layering in um, additional subtlety and elements as as you get closer and closer to, to final. Right. Um, I guess if you could come up with a general goal to keep in mind when you're lighting what makes sense to me is like the goal of lighting is to reveal the form of the object in some way uh would you agree with that yeah 100 percent. and i think i think you know the last like six to eight months or so now i've been working more and more as an art director and and that's that's provided me a new context of i think yeah lighting is about revealing the form but it's also about revealing the story and and it, it it's it's really about like once you have um some sort of a, a script in mind. What I found is is developing like a color script um, is really important in terms of lighting and and you know like knowing how you are um, like the, the types of temperatures and colors you're using in your lights, but but also thinking about that in a progressive way. So it's not you know if the job allows for it, it it's always more interesting to explore the passage of time in some capacity, and mm-hmm. so. Um, for me, like what I typically do, you know, in, in, as you're ramping up the lighting efforts in a production is, is actually build out a timeline, throw all that stuff in and have like a, a working live color script that you can, as you're testing things out, update and, and explore the idea that, you know, okay, like narratively or emotionally by the end of the film, this, this, you know, the, the climax of this is supposed to evoke, 
you know, hope or, or anger or whatever, which, which I realize like when we're talking about product films, like maybe that's a little too abstract, but you know what I mean? Like depending, like, like in the context of like going back to purple for a second, like everything was playing from a lighting standpoint. Like there was a, a very clear um, concerted effort to play off of the idea. That, like this is a mattress commercial. Like we're, we're talking about sleep. And so the lighting can tell its own story and so if you watch that film through the lens, you'll, you'll, you'll pick up that like the film starts at uh, dawn um, or dusk. I mean, sorry, which one is, which one's morning? Uh, <laughs> dawn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dawn, thank you. <laughs> starts at dawn and, and, and we actually see the progression of, of a day throughout the space, which is not a, not a, a main story that like you're supposed to necessarily walk away with, but the, but the subtlety and the nuance is there so that by the, by the end of the film, you see night approaching, and then the last sort of takeaway is you hear like the light, the light switch um, of, of a lamp turning off, and so it is like you know leaving you with like a well night's uh, rest, which is kind of like the whole motive of, of a mattress. Right. So I think again that to me that's that's an excellent example of considering story through the lighting itself. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, anything to give you like a. A, a goal to structure decisions around, or I guess the criteria. Exactly. A motivation. Yeah. 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 I guess going back to materials, um, I'm assuming at this point in your career, you have quite the library of stuff. <laughs> Do you, how, how big of a factor, uh, as a looked up artist, is it, what toolbox am I bringing to the project? Like what cache of textures and materials and lights, uh, should I have stockpiled before I start this job? Right. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I think so. I'm gonna fanboy here for a second, but I've been a longtime user of, um, of of the Substance tool set. So you know, Substance Painter, Substance Designer. Um, I know they've they've ventured into new categories, like Sampler and stuff like that now. Mm -hmm. um, to me, those those tool sets, um, Painter being the slightly more manual, but it, there there is still very much flexibility and, and a more procedural approach you can take with that tool set. Um, and then designer being sort of like the Houdini of, of material authoring. Mm -hmm. um, those tool sets allow me, have always allowed me the, the, the ability to explore the level of depth that I want with material development, but also um, make the process, which I think historically can be a very manual, very artistry driven um, pipeline into a more procedural production friendly um, task, you know? And so for me, it's, it, it's less about having like a, a predefined and sort of pre-set up like library of like textures that I've been collecting th through the years. Oftentimes the way I approach like material work with, with, uh, with a production job, again, through the context of like building the house through the ground up is to use um, substance designer in combination with they they have a, a substance source which is like a subscription-based library very similar to like mega scans mm -hmm. um where where you have you know through the years because they've been supporting it constantly a, a rather large library of just different materials you know spanning every you know possible type of, of subject you could think the, the key difference with this library um versus you know more traditional third-party uh, marketplaces is that they're they're actually selling and 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 
sharing um, the the source files essentially. So there are some cases where things are are scan based, but most of the time you can actually download. It's called an SBS file, which is like the the source. Um, substance designer mm-hmm. file and what that means is that because these materials are actually authored procedurally like i will use that as sort of like a sketchbook where if i'm like doing again like that first pass of a film and just kind of going through and like developing the the material language that's that that will be coherently used through or cohesively used throughout the film i will start just by as much as possible sourcing stuff through like substance source for mm-hmm. example because what that'll allow me to do i can i can start with that like preset um you know uh graph node graph for materials maybe make a few parameter tweaks if i know like yeah this you know this wood needs to be lighter than what what i downloaded Mm -hmm. kind of thing um but but if i can get that like first pass out with something like that it, it it one it allows me to quickly get out the first pass but two i know because i have the source graph that this is production friendly. I have I have the legs that if down the road we decide, oh, you know, the client wants a very granular, very specific mm-hmm. pattern in the fabric or or you know type of like noise or or decaling happening on the concrete. Like I have access to everything I need to to be able to go in and then um, modify and and build out um, using my own skill set what I need. And so to me, like that's the most friendly production friendly way of going about right. it. Um, and that's, I, I found a lot of success. With that. So would you say that that actually saves you time relative to just creating like C40 materials and dropping those on? Yeah, it, it, it certainly depends. And I think, I think this is a great example of, um, you know, what I, what I wanted to speak to as well, like getting into like as technical, you know, uh, an example as I can, like, it's also contextually about knowing who you're working with. And so if you're going to be working with like a team of C40 artists who may be usually in my experience, like working within the design space, there aren't a ton of people that work within substance as well. And so you also want to be aware and prevent any sort of large bottlenecks from coming up. Right. Like if I, if I texture everything in like substance painter, which requires UVs and like, can be a slow moving process to get up and running. It's fast once you get it there, but it can, it can take some time. Like maybe that's not the right call, you know, because you're, you're introducing a bottleneck to where now, okay, does every asset that need to be textured have to go through you? And what happens if you're sick yeah. or you need to take some time off or you're not available. Um, so it, it, it is about eliminating bottlenecks whenever possible. And that, that can happen in a number of ways. So like if you're working often the times, like what I was describing with using substance source and designer, you know, in, in that sense, I'm kicking out tileable materials that can work just as any other thing would. And so, you know, setting it up with triplanar and, 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 and some amount of controls from like the DCC, whether that's cinema, Houdini, whatever render engine side, so that any artist can essentially pick it up and be able to modify from there. Mm-hmm. Um, when you do have specific cases, if it's like a hero asset or something that really does warrant a more bespoke treatment through through painter which you know is essentially like photoshop for 3d models where you can really have a lot more informed decision making about blending masks and how grunge is being applied and you know all kinds mm-hmm. of things um that that my, my process for that kind of stuff that selfishly is what i enjoy doing the most because it is like full unrivaled creative control and, and artistry to just do what you want kind of yeah. thing um but it can be challenging and my, my process and approach to that has changed over time where 
Um, or, you know, when I was first starting out, it was like I would use Painter for everything that I needed, and then I would export the specific map. So I'd get like a base color, normal height, roughness, all the all the info stuff out of Painter, and I would just plug that in. And my node graph in in like Redshift, let's say, would be would be just that. Like I would like be plugging those directly into the channels, and that would be it. And that offered no control or flexibility if another artist needed to go in and make any changes. They're like, oh, well, there's a bitmap, but I, 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 don't, I don't know Painter, so I can't go in yeah. and change that. What my, where my approach has shifted now is um, rarely, if it's a production job, rarely will I actually export out like proper base color, proper maps directly from painter and that will be the only thing that's driving the material in in at, at render time what i will do now is actually structure my painter workflow in a way where i'm usually mostly exporting out utility masks and so like if i'm building a material or building a setup in painter where i've got like let's say a metal and then i've got like a layer of rust and and, and dirt and stuff on top rather than just exporting all of that baked into one image I'm exporting the the map the masks that I'm developing to blend all of those different things in mm. Painter, and then I'm essentially reconstructing those elements in in Cinema. And the advantage to that is, yes, there is still some amount of of uh, tasks being baked into those masks, but the average artist is going to be able to, if I give a note or someone else does that, oh, you know, like the 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 color of that rust layer specifically is too red or too orange and needs to it needs to be toned down like all i've done is set up essentially the blending masks that that are you know uh reconstructing that material at render mm -hmm. time and so they have all of the the exposed parameters that they need to be able to make those changes right yeah it makes sense you gotta think about adapting to a team-based workflow versus an iron-based workflow <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly and that that you know that that again works counterintuitively if if like you know most of your experience comes from personal work where there, you can do that and and go unpunished <laughs> um but it is like you know for me like that i find that actually very interesting like it's it's it sounds mundane but but to me there is a level of like technical problem solving that goes into that type of of work where you're considering the handoff to other artists on your team that um, that I personally enjoy and, and has has been valuable to 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 understand when again you're you're working with teams of artists and you need to kind of be able to facilitate that handoff. Yeah, definitely learning how important that is. Yeah, it's like art usually isn't a, a, a time trial. You know, it's not something that is like a sprint. But when you're in a production environment, yeah. it becomes a competitive sport in a sense. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I haven't heard that before, but yeah, I would, I would definitely, uh, I would definitely agree with that. And it, it's, you know, um, because I feel like we've also, through some of our early conversations at the start of this, given it a bad rap. It's also <laughs> very energizing, right? Like to me, at least, like the 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 potential dangers of like unchecked uh, personal work can be if you're not careful, like if you're trying to do like these, like, these like overly ambitious, massive scenes, like, you know, everyone has like unfinished work sitting on their hard drive. Um, and sometimes, sometimes it is good to have a deadline. Sometimes it's good to have someone waiting for you because it, it holds you accountable. And there's, so, I don't know, I always find it to be very energizing. Yes. It can be exhausting at times at, at the worst of times, but it's also very energizing to to work in a fast-paced environment where, um, 
where some of the decision making is is made through practical means. Right. No, I think the like I think we talked about at the beginning. The end of a project is usually when the sprint happens. Though you have some examples yeah. from your career of when that was front loaded a little bit, which sounds smart. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, I think seeing things come together in the end is always like an exciting time of life. The part that I exactly. don't necessarily love is when there's there's inevitably changes from the client that are past all of the red lines that you drew in the sand. And it just goes back and forth, oh, yeah. sort of like not necessarily adding or subtracting anything, just making things different as per people's taste. Um, and that, I yeah. think that's where most of the, the crunch and like stress comes in and it's, it's not yes. energizing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I have, I have, I have very little advice for that other than that it sucks. Um, and that you can, you know, that, that again, that is where applying as much strategic, uh, thought as you can into how you're building things while you're building them, hopefully, establishes some some safety levers that you can pull when when the rug gets pulled out in the 11th hour yeah for sure like you said you gotta you gotta plan in mind for this type of scenario (laughs) (laughs) yeah unfortunately pretty energized speaking of energy to get into substance painter after this i mean i've i think opened it in my life three times and it it seemed really powerful but yeah, again, it's like as a C4D guy, it seemed like a whole another specialization. It, it can be. It can be a slightly more specialized workflow, primarily because you have to love uh, UVs to, to Who doesn't? like, I think, I think, I know. But see, I, I mean, I know, I know I'm in the minority here, but I actually, I do enjoy UV unwrapping. Like to me, it is like doing a puzzle of like trying to figure out like what is the the, the best textile density I can get and how to pack things in a way that like, you know, everything is uniform and organized. Um, mm-hmm, sure. Yeah. That, that to me, that can, that can be sort of the gatekeeper to, to really um, hitting a level of control um, that, that doesn't feel too intimidating once you're working in that space. Um, I think, I think with painter, you know, the misconception it often gets is that at least in my experience with the design space is that, um, is that it isn't, uh, production friendly, that, that it's not procedural, that it, that it is about like, you know, it's like a very much, very similar to like ZBrush where you are essentially hand doing a lot of the work and you have maybe some control over layers, but that, that you're, you know, you are putting, putting digital pen to pay to, to digital paper on the, uh, uh, you know, every project that you work on. And the reality is like, I almost never, do any manual brushwork at all. Um, everything I do is driven in my painter workflow, at least through, through masks that are informed by like different baking methods that you do in painter. And so, um, to me, it's always very, very important to be able to replace the model. Like if there's a new, you know, if I'm working on like a city scene or whatever, and like the, the building completely changes into a new building, like I should be able to do that and with relatively minor efforts, be able to shift at a, at a whim's notice to whatever. I'm not like manually going in and painting, you know, bricks and, and grunge and stuff like that. Everything is being driven by position maps and thickness maps and, and cavity and AO maps that are like all calculated at sort of mesh import and stuff like right. that. Right. So I think it begs the question, aren't you in the wrong substance program though? 
Isn't that, weren't you describing designer as, as more up that alley? So the way I see it, designer, I'm, and, and, and if you had like a proper like game dev artist or someone who like really made a career out of using those tools specifically, they would probably laugh me out of the room. But in my experience, like designer, I always use for authoring maps. Like if I need to give someone at render time, like tileable maps that, that doesn't need to be specific to a, a particular model or informed by specific things. That is what I'm using designer for. I know designer has capabilities of baking and doing things per specific model. Um, but you know, I don't know if that's just more a, a level of control and comfort that I have in painter over the years. Cause I think for most people it's easier to start in painter and that that's a good introduction into the space and designer can get, you know, designer is like akin to Houdini in terms of like how it works and like the level of like, you know, different node setups and stuff like that. And depending on your, your level of comfort working in that type of workflow designer can often be a little bit more intimidating. Um, but, but my sort of like breaking it down to like black and white, I, I just know like if I need a generic material that can be applied across assets without UVs, I'm working in designer if I have like a hero asset that like needs like a level of granular control that, that I wouldn't be able to get at render time with triplanar, with a curvature node, with stuff like that, like then I'm working in painter. And that's just because the, the amount of um, control that like a lot of the smart masks and different filter options and, and just really honestly, the structure of that is, is better suited in my mind to, to facilitate that work. Yeah. Yeah, I'm always, uh, I, w I remember being impressed by how smart the program was about creating all these yeah. different details from the same like mesh information as the other programs. But I feel like at, at yeah, a yeah, lot absolutely. of the time in like C4D or you know Redshift, you get a curvature map, you get uh, like AO, you get less information available to you than Substance pulls out. Yeah, well, there's a level of a like, granular, like parametric control that that some of like my favorite substance, like material masking tools, you know, you know provide. Like they even have these things called like particle brushes, which are a bit less um, in use these days. It's kind of more of a deprecated feature, but you know, like in in Painter, for example, you have the ability to to generate masks like based on particle emission and particle age. So if I'm doing something where, you know, let's say, let's say I have an asset, I don't know, let's say it's a robot and it's like rusty and dirty and it's been outside a lot, but then like the scene it's raining. And so you want to like show that like there is now rain streaking down and like maybe like clearing off some of the dirt. So you want to see those like rain streaks, like, you know, um, uh, omitting um, or, or overriding like where the dirt was like in painter, you have the ability to literally like, there's like a rain brush that you can like turn rain on in the scene and it will actually calculate particles hitting the surface. And then based on like controls that you can set of like gravity and, and surface tension and stuff like that, actually, you know, art direct in a very technical way, the, the flow of, of those streaks actually happening on. And so it's not like, it's just like, a triplanar tileable map that someone took of their window uh, with like rain streaks going down it. it. It really is actually being informed by physical properties and by the mesh itself of like, Oh yeah. Like, because 
the the way it's curved here and there's like a little cavity like more rust or more dirt or more water would actually pool up there and that based on the physical properties you set like you actually see that happen in a lot of cases wow it's pretty crazy so yeah, what would it export yeah. that as if it was like an animated rain across the entire object like would that just be a png sequence or something yeah. So in terms of like animating that, that's, that's another like subtlety. So I think, you know, um, from what I understand, I, I, I can't recall a way to export animated sequences out of painter, but designer does have all the flexibility. And I've done, I've done some tests with stuff like that before, which is really cool. There's some really cool stuff. If you look it up online of like, um, yeah, you can, you can animate parameters, um, with, with time functions. So you, you can, you can do kind of what you're talking about there. Maybe not necessarily to all of the control that I'm speaking with that rain example of like having an animated sequence for that. But, um, but yeah, an example, yeah. No, an enticing example, you're selling yeah. purple mattresses yeah. and you're selling substance for free. I know. Gosh, I feel like I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, I need to get some advert money here. Yeah. Sp speaking of that, I was curious, um, since, since you're a freelancer, um, at the moment, not really tied to any company, yeah. I was curious if you could weigh in on, on that basically like independence versus, in, uh, full-time employment. And I guess kind of tied into yeah. that today is this idea of establishing your own brand and identity, um, as, as far as like sure. NFT stuff goes. Cause I feel like a lot of heavy hitter 3d people have, sort of <laughs> cash the fuck out. <laughs> um, speaking of Cornelius, you know, it sounds like he, I don't know, he, he has an NFTs listed on his site that he sold. I tallied them up. I'm yeah. pretty sure it was over a million dollars. And I, I feel like he wasn't someone who was the biggest name in the industry before that. I mean, he was up there, but mm -hmm. there's gold uh, out there and everyone's trying to pan for it right now. Um, I was wondering if you were getting in on that and just how that really, how you feel about independence as a 3d artist. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've definitely, um, I haven't actually, um, signed anything to my name necessarily in, in the NFT space. I've, I've certainly been working in it to some degree. I mean, to be honest, it's, it's kind of impossible to avoid. I, I'd be curious what your experience has been. Not great. Um, but with, you know, <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. With this, with this industry, like, you know, um, with the amount of uh, attention, obviously that it's, it's in a lot of cases rightfully getting, um, you know, like uh, for me, it's like in the past year, like, it, it seems like half the inquiries that come in now, even from studios are getting in on the space. And like, so it, it's, 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 I guess all that to say is that because I, ha just because I haven't like necessarily released an NFT product of my own, doesn't mean I'm like ignoring the space per se. I've, I've been working with a lot of companies um, in, in that mm -hmm. space. And um, to me, you know, going back to like the, the freelance um, identity and, and like, you know, building a brand for yourself kind of thing. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've really enjoyed, um, you know, I made a very decisive plan of going freelance um, back, geez, it's been a, a little over a year now, um, you know, leaving Man V to go freelance. And, and a lot of that became like, was, was part of the the ever-changing landscape of um you know obviously with with things going more remote as we talked about um that that created an avenue where it, it suddenly became possible to work with so many different studios and, and and companies and brands that 
previously were, were landlocked, you know, I mean, like getting to work with like Tendril, for example, I mean, I don't, I don't know prior to the pandemic, I assume they were, they were probably somewhat remote friendly, but, but certainly I'm sure like the, the, the last two years have opened up a lot of companies, the mill, I'm sure as well, you know, I've done, I've done work for the mill while in Michigan for like the LA team and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, the ability to do that, I, I found to be incredibly energetic and, and exciting this past year, especially. And I'm, I'm very proud of the teams I've gotten to work with this past year and, the, and some of the work we've done together. Um, I'm, I'm very excited about like what lies ahead with that. I mean, and I think that that plays into the NFT space, but I think larger than that, just like holistically, the, the industry itself. My, my hope is that a lot of these, um, you know, borders remain blurred and, and, and so that we can all kind of work together and, you know, getting to, getting the opportunity to work with a lot of like European designers that I, that I greatly admire, um, it, you know, wouldn't have been something that I could have necessarily done through, uh, you know, sitting at a desk in LA necessarily. And so, right. um, yeah, it's been really fun. Yeah. It makes sense. It's a whole world of opportunity out there right now. Yeah, absolutely. It's weird to see this very, um, sort of under the radar, sort of nerdy field in the news with uh, <laughs> some of this stuff recently, <laughs> especially, you know, it's a field in the arts and they're in the news for making ridiculous amounts of money, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Talking to my, to my, uh, my father, my, my very uninformed father about this stuff um, about people, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's uh, like him asking me who that is, is, is certainly an interesting thing. Yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> he's, he's going to like red carpet parties. Like he went to the Oscars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. 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 And it's like, man, like two years ago, I was like grabbing drinks with him in LA. You know, it's just funny how that works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he seems like a funny guy. Yeah. He's a very, very nice guy. I interviewed him before the NFT stuff. Um, Kind of, mm, kind of on a different yeah. site that I started originally about freelancing and it was all like, oh, yeah, it was all like text articles. So I would like interview these people and then I would like coalesce that, uh, into an article that I kind of wrote, but sprinkled their quotes throughout. And I kind of buried the lead, I think, cause like I had some good people in there, but they were just like strewn throughout this article that I wrote and, um, mm. people was on there and I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like, I wish I saved that audio from that and I could put it up as a podcast these oh, days. Yeah. Put it now. Because <laughs> text doesn't hit the same. Yeah. It's like you don't funny. really get credit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, cool. Yeah. So, I don't know, I think you answered most of my questions to a pretty detailed degree. I just have one more. Yeah, absolutely. You seem like you pretty much have the world of... 3d and design it as your oyster right now. Um, and yeah. I'm curious what dreams of yours are still out there that you haven't accomplished yet. And what is stopping you at this point from doing that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let's see. You know, I think, I think from a, a, a short term perspective, you know, I mentioned the, the ever, um, growing desire to, diversify skill sets and just try out new new tools and learn new workflows and stuff for me i i've always um strayed away from like specifically like 
animation and 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 more of the the motion side of motion design um and so that that's something that that i think i'm always like in the back of my head um you know aware of of uh wanting to spend a little bit more time um developing that kind of stuff i think i think as i as i get ready to you know as i mentioned like starting to work as an art director a little bit more is is starting to contemplate and, and understand and explore the the larger picture at play and and how and figuring out how that sort of balances and complements my my ability and interest to to get really granular and specific with things like there's an interesting juxtaposition there right of of um having the awareness to take a step back and and, and view things through through the lens of a much bigger picture but then also still having the energy and patience to to like know when the right time is to step in at, at a very granular microscopic level and, and, and finesse something with, with siloed vision, right. um, you know, while not neglecting the rest of the project kind of thing. And so to me, like, that's an interesting sort of dichotomy that I'm, I'm, I'm exploring and, and excited about continuing. Um, I think, you know, bigger picture wise, um, continuing to develop the, the relationships with, with different studios, you know, maybe starting to work more directly with, with clients in the coming years. Um, but, but really just, um, and it's, it's, I, I guess I'm, I'm realizing there's, there's less of an obstacle board just of like, uh, get to it mentality here, but, but really just, um, trying to, to cross paths with as, with as many, um, you know, engaging artists and, and different teams and clients out there. I, I think there's a lot of, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, like with, with, um, Man V and with Tendril, those are both companies that I, I, I've, I've seen firsthand how important it is to have the right clients that, that trust you, that, that understand, you know, your motivations beyond just like selling to a certain demographic or something like that, but actually like, you know, wanting to make work that is creatively engaging and inspiring. And, um, I, you know, I've been very fortunate to work with clients like that. And I think, I think that's, that's a long-term goal is just, um, you know, potentially finding a way to, to, to make a living just off of working with, with, with clients. Like that. <laughs> I hope it seems like you're on the right track. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks man. Um, yeah, it was, it was great talking to you. I really am a big fan of your work. I feel like uh, your attention for detail is not lost on me. Um, I mean, I work with some people <laughs> that kind of remind me of you a little bit and, uh, sure. I'm always, I don't know. I'm always trying to be as granular as I think people like you are. And he is, it doesn't really come naturally to me. I think I'm a little bit more like, uh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not the most detail oriented person in the world, but it's become pretty clear over my career. Like that's kind of what the job of a 3d, uh, designer is to some degree. It's like really, to some degree. I mean, when it comes to material Go and lighting ahead, at least, it's like, it's really just like micro analyzing the world around you to accurately represent yeah. that. And, uh, yeah. yeah, it's a big part of the job. There's, totally. There's a level of intimacy, um, with that, that I think is really important. Um, if you have like the, the patience and ability to, to sort of withstand that said, um, you know, I can say that my, like my differing skill uh, viewpoint is that I, I greatly admire artists that, have the ability to like, like, you know, not stress those details as much and work more nimbly. Like 
I don't think any project would get done if like an entire team was built off of people who like are more concerned about the dust particles <laughs> than than the pacing of the edit, right. you know. And so I think I think I think the the perfect balance of a team is having artists that can do both or, or having a mix of artists uh, that, that fall into those categories because they, they hold each other accountable and they, they, you know, pick up um, where uh, each other's strengths and weaknesses are. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Somewhat flattering. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's true. Um, yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing your time with me. It's great talking to you as we discussed. Absolutely. Maybe thanks. it's not the last time. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. Anytime. We'd love to, uh, we'd love to, to pick this up further and, and, uh, explore any, any layer and, and depth of, of, uh, nerdy technical details as you so desire. I mean, that's the interesting <laughs> stuff. I'm realizing having like talked to a decent number of people now, I, I like picking out one project or two projects and just like hearing about the details of what went right or wrong with that. Um, yeah. I, I think that kind of begs for a video series, honestly, but one day. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's the kind of thing. That'd be great, you know, future thing. And uh, yes, prepare some visuals and, and a little bit of a breakdown. I think, I think that's the way to go. We'll get cooking on that. But um, yeah, until next time, thanks so much. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Justin. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please subscribe to our email list to get new episodes delivered straight to your inbox. This series is a vessel for you to hear from the creators that you look up to. Use the form below to let me know who you'd like to hear from and what you're dying to ask them. Until then, keep on learning and keep on creating.